0: Hi, my name is Deval Kirsten and I'm a photographer based in South Africa. I've always had a huge passion to connect with people from all walks of life and the national lockdown has forced me to do that. I've had to come up with new and interesting ways of connecting with friends and connections and people that I've always wanted to connect to, hence this podcast. I'm doing daily live shows on my Facebook page where I talk to new and interesting people and these I will be converting to podcasts that you can listen to on your own time. So please stick around and uh, love to hear your feedback. Hello everyone, how's it going this afternoon? We are busy with another lockdown live. Um, I'm just busy checking to see if the feed comes up onto YouTube. Good afternoon. Hi, Roger. How are you? Can you hear me? Fine. I can hear you very well. Can you hear me? Yep. We're <laughs> green to go. <laughs> You're looking... I wish I had I had your hair cut today. It was it windy in Cape Town?
1: No, no, no. I just... I'm beginning to get that shaggy dog look.
0: <laughs> and all the barbers <laughs> are closed. <laughs> oh, my God. How's things? Ask things in Cape Town? Still in Cape Town, yes. Yeah, we um,
1: are. As you know, this this lockdown has literally stuck us right almost inside our houses. At least here in Camps Bay, we're very fortunate. Well, my house I'm very fortunate. I can somehow run around it a little bit, ten or twelve times a day, twice. Okay. So it gives a bit of exercise.
0: Yeah, we've um, we've also got a nice big yard. So I've said to I said to somebody yesterday. It's going to look like one of those yards where a border collie is running up and down the fence, and it creates that moat that goes around. I think that's going to be about what's going to happen at the end of this thing.
1: Yeah, it's it's not the it's not the best exercise, but the main thing is to do something at least once or twice a day to get the heart rate up.
0: Yes, 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 for sure. Um, yeah, no, I haven't had a, a quick. Um, I haven't had a chance to quickly introduce you. Um, when did we first meet? I think it was back in twenty seventeen or twenty sixteen when we first met. The first uh, time.
1: must be something.
0: Uh,
1: it probably was something like three or four years ago. I'm trying to think what the first shoot was. Was it somewhere? Was it not in that farmhouse?
0: No, we were, we we first met at that one talk I gave at uh, Camera Land. Oh yes, 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 yes. yes. And um, we still we still had a chat afterwards about the photographing the moon. If I remember correctly.
1: Yes, yes, and then I think there was a, a task one day to try and film or pick or photograph the um, the rising full moon. Yes, and, uh, and it it was quite a challenge.
0: Yes. Well, it was. Did you did you take some photos of the moon um, two days ago? No, I didn't, because on this side of the mountain,
1: uh, by the time it's up, it's so bright. Uh, You know, you have to use a very, very fast shutter speed to get any um, texture. Although I did try it, and then when I downloaded it onto my computer, for some reason there was a a bit of distortion. But in the back of the camera, I got this lovely blue image, but it didn't didn't work out when when it was
0: transferred. But in in Camps Bay, you should be able to do it. Like, but that you'll have to get up at like sparrow's fart in the morning just to be in time to photograph the moon before it goes down.
1: I could do that, but the <laughs> the, the sparrow the sparrow is not
0: around. <laughs> <laughs> are, are, are you guys are you in all good health, uh, Roger? Now I believe you guys were in a big accident a while ago.
1: Yeah, that was quite the most distressing thing I've been through for some time because my son and I, we were coming back from playing golf at the uh, um, uh, Zalza, driving on the right side, on the correct side of the road, doing about 50 or 60. We were absolutely in no hurry. And um, I didn't see it happening, but the, some guy just pulled out from the other side. And the first thing I had or felt or saw was my windscreen shattering in front of me. I don't think I even heard the bang. And then I thought, well, what's gone wrong here? And um, it was, uh, we were very lucky uh, because it turned out that these guys who hit us, they were drunk, absolutely mortally drunk, according to the authorities. And um, uh, someone who witnessed the uh, accident said, that my car turned 360 this way and then rolled as well. Sure. So it's remarkable that we were able to step out.
0: Oh, my word. Yeah, sure. that's no, terrible. I mean,
1: it's... And then uh, I suppose I should be extremely grateful that we were able to step out and uh, the car was a complete write-off. But yeah. uh, I guess that's... We well, are very lucky. Yeah. The other guys who were the... Vic, or let's say who hit us... They were carried away in stretchers, and who knows what happened to them? Because they must have gone straight through the windscreen and um, ended up on the road.
0: Oh my word! Horrible. Oh.
1: Okay. But so- uh, that's the, that's the trouble, I think. You know, on particularly on that R three ten, it seems that on a Sunday night, it, the people are coming from Kyalicha and they're going towards the Stellenbosch area, and. According to some people, the, the, there's a reputation for drunk driving on that road, but
0: who knows? Right. So, um, just a just a quick background. You've you you were involved in a big pharmaceutical company back a couple of years ago. Um, yes, yeah. can you can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, uh, I I started my career um, actually. <laughs> I was working in the shipbuilding industry. No, I was a, first of all, I was a student, mechanical engineering. I was involved in the shipbuilding industry in Scotland, in Glasgow, and it was at a time when Harold Wilson was in power, and he was propagating all these rather socialist ideas, which I just didn't understand. I just could not, let's say, assimilate myself to. And I thought this is really not the type of country I want to be in. I want to be in a place where uh, there is uh, endeavour, you know, and not just sucking off the state. So I applied for a job in Switzerland with Sandos at the time, and I was successfully accepted. And then I worked in Basel, Switzerland, for three years. That was more or less used as a way of of the company finding out do they like you and do you like them, Mm -hmm. and so forth. And my my first, my first task was to work actually on the, uh, the desk of uh, handling affairs from West Africa and South Africa. And um, after three years, they came to me and said, uh, Here's a ticket, an air ticket. And I go, Yes, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Bossman. Uh, where am I going? Mm-hmm. He said, You're going to Indonesia. And I go, Indonesia? I said, and this is in the late late 70s, it must have been the early 70s. I said, do you realize there's a war going on out there? There's a thing (laughs) called the Vietnam War. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, it's a one-way ticket, Mr. Trifle. (laughs) (laughs) But it it was interesting times because, you know, you're a young guy and uh, you've got your education behind you. But you have got no that education does not give you the, um, how should I call, it, the skills to actually work in an entirely different culture with entirely different languages. So in that sense, it was quite a challenge uh, to do that. And then um, and also to start a business from basically scratch, I, I've often said to people that when I arrived at this office, which was a house, by the way, and uh, we had separated it into into offices. I think my first desk was a bamboo desk left over from the Japanese occupation. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but it was, it's, it's, it was a great experience, and I, I don't know if young people get the opportunity to be suddenly chucked into something which is totally greenfield mm. um, with very little experience, and you've got to somehow use your your knowledge and your I think your empathy to um, work with a, a new culture I mean I could tell you stories that there was it, it, I, I will tell you a story once we we were um, uh, contract manufacturing uh, with an Indonesian company and uh, it was Sandoz and Herx and other very significant companies work with this particular company. And um, the owner was a lady, Mrs. Aberdeen. Now, Mrs. Aberdeen was about 1 meter 20 or something in height. She was tiny. <laughs> but she always was extraordinarily and exquisitely dressed, you know. And we had we, we, we would have this boardroom where we would have monthly meetings. And um, she was the boss. And her husband was, uh, uh, let's say, the, the president. And she was the, the chairman or whatever you like to call it and one we were discussing them the manufacturing fees over a period of time and um one day we got to the point where we were having some difficulty getting some to, to an agreement and then suddenly mr aberdeen picked up his papers and banged them on the table and he said mr trifle you are the most impossible man i've ever met and i thought to myself there's nothing in the MBA program that teaches you how to handle this. <laughs> no, no,
0: no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 there was, he stormed out of the meeting room and then there was just Mrs. Aberdeen there and myself and I thought to myself, it's, this is not my move.
0: Yeah.
1: You know? And I, and I thought, and we waited there for about, what was it, 10, 20 seconds and then Mrs. Aberdeen leaned across the table and said, Mr. Trifle, could we get down to business? <laughs> to which my response was, this would be a pleasure.
0: <laughs> anyway, an anecdote from the past. Yeah, it's on, on, on that kind of topic where you say about the youth of this day. We had a, I had a chat this morning to a friend of ours and um, I, don't think the, I don't think the young people now get to go through things and figure out stuff being thrown into the deep end of the pool and made to swim is that I think I think what, what's happening now is the parents all go, all oh, right, little Johnny is suffering at school, so something must be causing this. So they yes. go to the go to the teacher. It's either the teacher's fault or the school's fault or um, his rugby practice or whatever the story is. But it's never it's never little Johnny's fault. And I think that's the problem. They don't they don't give them let them take responsibility for their own actions. And let them figure out how to fix these kind of things. I, and I think that's that's what's what's wrong these days.
1: Yeah, that's that's the point. But then, just to go back to, I mean, I just gave you an anecdote, and then after that, um, I was then posted to Montreal in Canada, which I stayed. And I stayed there for ten years, and then um, one day the boss phoned me up from Basel, and he said, South Korea, and we went South Korea. Well. Anyway, uh, we went there, and my wife said, we're going to be eating sauerkraut and potatoes for 12 months. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then, so we was, I said to my boss, I'm very sorry, it's not going to work. Anyway, he called me about a year later, and he said, well, how about South Africa? Uh, so um, then our friends in Canada are going, how can you consider it? There's a war going on in there, you know, because <laughs> it, was, it was apartheid yes. in the eighty-six and all the rest of it, you know. So anyway, and that's how we have landed in South Africa. And that's why we're here. And we stayed. So there we are.
0: Yeah, but it's um, one of the things I want to ask you is that with all these people leaving South Africa now, and, and you you can literally pack your stuff now and move back to your home country where you originally came from without any issues, but you choose to live here. And, and so, so South Africa is fantastic for that. Well, well, I
1: can't. And answer that di in the following way, it was around about 2000. we were still in Johannesburg, and um, Jacqueline was very badly attacked in the house. And um, we decided that uh, we've had enough, sold everything, and we then went back to Zurich where we spent uh, uh, a year working in Zurich. And you know we were very lucky. We have all the passports. we have Canadian, British, Swiss, the whole thing. And we we went back to England, had a look. wasn't my style. Went to went to Vancouver. It poured for four days. So Jacqueline said, "No way." And then we went back to Zurich, and I'm going. There's no golf. Well, there are golf courses, but it's not my way of life. So she said, "Well, what about Cape Town?" So we came back to Cape Town. So there you are. But I mean, we're at that stage in our life where we're lucky we can live here and we can enjoy the amenities of of, of South Africa. Um, There's lots of, uh, of course, there's lots of problems and there's lots of issues. But everywhere you go, I mean, in Canada, when we lived in Canada, the biggest issue in Quebec was the constant nagging and nagging about independence of Quebec. It was tiring to listen to. Mm. Um, So you have other problems here. You had problems there. But... Uh, We're here now, and uh, we've been through that so-called exodus,
0: uh, but we're not moving out. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's. uh, I had a chat to some friends of mine the other day as well. I think if if I was young and single without family, I would have probably have moved overseas. Um, But I can't. I would love to go travel overseas to a lot of places, but I don't see myself moving over permanently. I think.
1: I think too many South Africans criticize their fellow South African when they leave South Africa. And I think it's the wrong thing to do because we, despite the recent virus thing, we do live in a global situation. And I believe it's important, particularly for young people, to try to have some sort of international career and to be able to Let's say, go and work in the States. Well, I wouldn't like to work with Mr. Mr. Trump, but that's not the point. The idea of working in another country to learn another culture and another mm. way of doing business or whatever you're, you're doing, and I think that makes you a better person.
0: Yes, no, Well, it, it, it's experience. So
1: it, it, it's not a case of escaping. It's a case of building yes. yourself as, a, as an alternative. You can always come back to South Africa and, and, and do things,
0: but that's how I feel. Okay, and and your your son is still in Zurich, von, correct? Well, we have the, th- the three boys. We have two living in um,
1: Zurich. Uh, one's in the world of banking. The other one works for uh, the Swiss airline, and the third one, uh, he's in Holland, working also in banking. Um, but how, what the future of the banks are, yeah. heaven
0: knows. <laughs> well, what, 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 what's the what's the feedback from from Europe with regards to what's going on? Because it's the whole world is in a lockdown somehow. Um, yeah, what, what, what are they saying from that side of the world? Well,
1: the, the, all these, these three boys, they're, they're working part, partly from home and partly they go to the offices. Um, they, they accept it, so there seems to be much more uh, latitude of being able to go and do things while at the same time respecting the idea of distancing and and confinement and so forth. I think this lockdown in South Africa is extraordinarily severe. I mean, to forbid people to literally not even go into the streets, unless it's for, for, let's say, necessities and essentials, seems extremely harsh. But on the other hand, if you consider the demography of the country, Maybe one has to do this because not everyone has the space that we have. Or the Uh, discipline. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's so stringent. Um, But you know, David, I think this idea of confinement is 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 appropriate, but it's got to be part of another of of a a strategy, which is what I think they call the three T's. Um, which of course is uh, you really have to uh, trace the people you have to mm. treat the people and you have to test the people and if you don't do combine those three t's for example with confinement i i, ha- I have some anxieties
0: okay yeah i had to i had to take my, my wife to the to the um, to the hospital yesterday afternoon uh, she's got a she's got a bad back and that to give her injection and everything but now while I'm busy standing there, all the, all the doctors and nurses are dressed up with face visors and masks and, yeah. and um, like these little plastic apron things. But what I'm saying to myself is, why didn't they test us when we came there? Even if we didn't come for anything flu related, they should yeah. have yeah. immediately added us to the database. Well, we are in there already. We're going to be paying a fee to use the emergency room in any way. Might as well get that done and dusted um, and then you know that you are either clean or that you are infected um, and, and at least build the, the, um, the, the database up that way. Because I think at the moment they are, the, the cases that they show as active, I personally think is only one tenth of what's actually going on in South Africa at the moment. And that is what, sorry? The amount of infections. You think it's higher? Yes, for sure. Because how many, uh, looking at the demographic of South Africa, how many people has got the resources to go and test a family of four or five um, willingly? Um, th- that's the, that's just the way I see it. I see. I think the actual active um, cases in South Africa is way more than what the stats are saying.
1: And that's that's a shame because. I think South Africa's recent governments have a history very obviously and particularly under Zuma of not telling the truth yeah. and, and and I think that's, here's an opportunity for a, let's say a new president uh, with a different set of people in government to, to, to break away from that uh, and whether he's doing it or not I don't know, people speak highly that his his speech. I didn't listen to his speech last night, but they said it was very, very balanced and very, um, let's say, profound. But um, if we don't get the truth about the numbers, then I think he's not treating us uh, as responsible citizens, and we are responsible. We can be responsible.
0: Yeah, but it, but it's a, it's a same old thing. Exactly. We, what, I, what we spoke about earlier is that the people are not allowed to. Um, how, how can I say this? Um, if, if people step out of outside the line, what repercussions are there for them? Yes, they are saying they are locking them up, but how and where will they lock them up? Because our jails are full. They can't risk the fact to take a person from a street that walked around outside with his dog and stick him into Paul's moor who says he's not infected. Um, it, it's simply, they, and they can't put them in police cells. How long are they going to keep them in police cells for? It's Easter weekend, so it, it those kind of things doesn't make sense. Um, yes. And then, and then all of a sudden, you see people saying, "Well, the police are being brutal, and the army is being brutal." But what should they do if there's a taxi full of drunk people refusing to adhere to the rules? Um, it, nobody, nobody is takes responsibility for their own acts, and, I, and that's one of the reasons why I think we. we what we see is not exactly how it is at the moment.
1: Yeah, I and of course, that's right. Um, I mean, I get the impression that the security forces, or however you like to call them, are focusing on areas of, let's say, high contagion. Um, there's no point in patrolling, um, I don't know, well, for example, Camps Bay. I mean, yes. Camps Bay has its own peculiar the way it's set up, uh, you know, there's only three roads into Camps Bay. Um, in a way, it's a, it's a closed community. It's rather like Lundabno, it's a closed community. So if after these three or four weeks, we don't have any cases in these areas, then there are no cases. Yes. But of course, you can't for some reason in this country, and I understand that politically, you can't make these um, uh, distinctions. Uh, so I guess we all have to comply my my feeling is that in a, in, a, in a couple of weeks' time, I think people will start to actually interpret the regulations for themselves and start to go walking or cycling, and uh, anyway, we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you've you've travelled quite a bit um, <laughs> during your working professional career, and now that you've been retired, um, what 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 would you say is the is like your the place that you enjoyed the most where you've been to? I don't know. Apart from South
1: is Enjoy is a, is, a, is a limited word in a funny way. Um, <laughs> I've, As you say, I've been to a variety of places. I guess the answer to the question really is I've gone to a variety of places and each of those places have had their own merits and mm. their own rewards and their own Uh, Excitement, if you like. Um, uh, We were lucky we went to the Antarctic about, I've forgotten, 10 years ago. And that was an extraordinary experience to to sail across the Drake Passage. Um, And how it came about was I was in London and I uh, was browsing the bookshop and I saw this um, um, audio disc about Shackleton. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I picked that up and I read it and so forth. And uh, then one day Jacqueline said to me, well, you've read about Shackleton in the Antarctic. Why don't we go to the Antarctic? So well, that's how we did and, and we were very lucky that we were on a very small Russian boat. Uh, not, a, not, a, not an icebreaker per se, but more or less something that could handle the ice, you know, thin ice flows. And there were only about 40 passengers on the boat so it was quite intimate and uh, then we um, crossed the drake passage which was quite the most fearsome
0: thing i've ever done in my life and uh, eventually ended up at, especially because you know sailing and you know what the ocean is and all those kind of places well when you see these waves i mean i you can't estimate them. Are they they
1: five meters high? Are they 10 meters high? It's hard to say, but when this boat's doing this and this and this and this, we know we're having a rough time. (laughs) (laughs) But we got to the Antarctic, and that was a great experience. Um, And then what we actually really ended up doing to some extent was to uh, retrace the the, the, the passage of Shackleton. And we ended up in... um, um, Stromness, where he started, and also Gritviken where he is, uh, his grave is. And we were very fortunate that our, our guide and lecturer uh, is, on history and the history of expeditions in the Antarctic was um, a direct relative of um, Shackleton. His name was actually Shackleton. I've forgotten his Christian name. It doesn't matter. So I have this beautiful picture. Well, not a beautiful picture. It wouldn't, it wouldn't stand up in a competition. But it's a picture of of Shackleton standing beside the grave of his of his relative. Sure. So the Antarctic was something very special. And then to go back to your question, I think another special place would be the Himalayas. Um, these are to go up into these mountains and see the majesty and the the the, the beauty and the, the the just the scale of them. Uh, that is quite an extraordinary experience. I mean, I got to base. I've been to base camp. On the south side, and then last year, two or no, three years ago, I went to the base camp on the north side. And that is again also interesting historically because uh, it was on the north side, which is the Tibet side, that the 1922, 23, I think it was the uh, 21, 22, and 24 expeditions uh, under Mallory, well, they weren't, Mallory was not the, the leader, but he was the main climber. And of course, you stand in the same spot that George Mallory stood there in 1924. You see what he saw, and uh, off he went up that mountain with the group and the, so forth. But and uh, he died. He didn't make it. Uh, he got probably within about a thousand feet of the peak, yeah. and then just the weather overwhelmed him. And he, they found his body. Actually, I think it was about ten years ago, and. Um, it isn't been been perfectly preserved, and um, I think he he must have fallen and broken an ankle, and then of course he couldn't move. The temperatures got him, and that was the end of him.
0: Yeah.
1: Anyway, uh... so to go back to your question, these are some of the areas I've enjoyed. I could go on about. (laughs) New Zealand is a beautiful country to go to. Definitely, I mean, we love that, and the Caribbean to sail,
0: lovely. Anyway. Yeah, no, Mount Everest and Antarctica is pretty high up on my list of places to see one day. Um, But to to go back to your question, I think,
1: Deva, is that, as you know, I'm sort of getting more into the photography thing, the photographic world, and I'm finding it very interesting to join groups such as yourselves, and we go off to places that... You would not normally go to. I mean, uh, last year, um, uh, I was in Ethiopia right down at the bottom in the Omo Valley and um, photographing these very tribal pastoral people. So it's all very well going off the Antarctic or going off to, let's say, the Himalayas, which are themselves extraordinary experiences. But to actually then go and visit um, a community which is essentially pastoral and uh, stuck in, in their traditions, that is also interesting. And the same with that in January there, just before this virus um, hit us. Um, we I was in Lake Turkana in Kenya. And that I, I would never have gone to these places if it wasn't for photography. Yes, And I think that's another um, uh, interesting aspect, how photography can take you to places that you would never go otherwise.
0: Yeah, and, and imagine if you were as... As invested in your photography back then, when you went to Antarctica and the Himalayas, like you were now, it would have been totally different.
1: Well, I might have been much more conscious of, of let's say, the techniques of photography, as opposed to perhaps taking uh, snaps for the sake of the word, you know. But um, uh, one did try to take pictures of, for example, I mean, how do you photograph? In St. Andrew's Bay there on on, on, on um, South Georgia, the population of the penguins, these are the, the king penguins, not the emperor penguins, yes. uh, the population is the same as the population of the city of Zurich, 450,000 penguins. I mean, it's extraordinary. I, I actually... Ended up, I do. I do have a picture. I managed to find make one picture, which I'm rather pleased of. Is the three, peng, three penguins walking in a row, like this? And behind it is Mount Paget, which is the, a trick question. that someone asks, and I don't know how the question goes, but what is the highest mountain in British territories? Okay. And, of course, people go, well, it must be Ben Nevis in Scotland, which, of course, is the, the highest mountain in Great Britain. But in British territories, including Britain, it's Mount Paget in the Antarctic. I think it's like 3,000 meters, but there we are.
0: <laughs> okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> neither, did, neither did I until I looked at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I, I think with the Internet, it has opened up these kind of places to the, to the man on the street to... Know about and learn about so much. I've 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 read about Ascension Island a good couple of years ago, and just this past week I watched I watched um, a YouTube video from a bunch of South Africans that went to Ascension Island because I know it's got amazing fishing. That went there to go do uh, deep sea spear fishing to, to to get tuna and stuff, and it was absolutely mind blowing. It was it's it's crazy. They they're in this deep blue ocean and, it's, and it's, it's that deep royal blue, um, it's, it's tropical and they've got these 100 kilogram fish swimming all around them that yeah no it's amazing, absolutely amazing. But, but you, you know you
1: bring me to a point going back to the discussion around this crisis that um, one of the things I think about is that um, uh, this is a message uh, from the planet to humanity mm and it's a very simple messages shape up or ship out yeah um, I have you know the planet could say I've warned you with hurricanes I've warned you with droughts I've warned you with floods and you are stressing my you're stressing me to the end fix it and uh, I'm hoping that I mean this your fishing story is interesting because they now talk about how we start to see, um, I think, dolphins in, in the waters outside Venice, which was have a, is not the case has not been the case for yeah. a, I guess years. So, uh, will we as humanity uh, shape up and stop um, uh, s- making a mess of this we, we can't support nine billion people carrying on the way we're doing. Um, that is self-evident to me. And I think that's what this, I think that there's a message in this crisis and whether governments and society and institutions uh, take it upon themselves, and businesses, for example, take it upon themselves, and even the private citizen, take it upon themselves to be much, much more conscious of how they behave and live, uh, then we could face an even bigger disaster. Mm. I mean... The worst thing that could happen is if we have a – this turns out to be the Spanish flu. That would be a catastrophe. But that's that's what I think. And if you take South Africa, I mean, we are chucking out fumes there on these coal-fired power stations. I don't understand why we are not rushing full steam ahead into renewables and, and the sun and the wind. What's holding us up? Uh, I mean, it's
0: because it's not. It's not it's because nobody can it's get not- a kickback on the sun's energy. It's, um, nobody can write a contract saying, I'm going to supply you so many hours of sunlight. this. And I, I personally, that's, what, that's all it is. They, they keep hammering on the coal because there's a chain reaction of money flowing. Because somebody needs to, they need trucks and they need people and they need to deliver and everybody's getting their cut of the pie until we get it out of our plug in the house. But with the sun, they can't do that. You know, you're you're
1: right. Uh, It is a it is an important employment source, Um, but that does not mean to say you don't start to systematically address it and have a plan to really wind the thing down over time, um, so that you're moving more and more towards renewables and, and so forth. And let me give you an example. Uh, When I was in Lake Turkana, uh, one of the um, uh, fellow photographers worked for Mercedes. He was a design engineer at Mercedes. And I asked him the question about, are you going to be, as you design, moving more and more towards the electric vehicle and so forth? And his answer was cautiously, step by step, but not too quickly. So I asked him, well, why is that? And he said, because we in Mercedes, I think they employ something like 250,000 people across the world. He said, if we were to suddenly junk the petrol engine or the diesel engine, we, would, we don't need 250,000 people. We could do it maybe with 100,000. So yeah. we have a social responsibility to keep employment. And I, I can understand that argument applying to this, the coal-fired power stations. But let me make a point that if we don't actually drive it, I mean, it's rather like going back to my origins as a student. I was in the shipbuilding industry as a, stu- as a student. I left it because I could see the industry was going to die. Yes. And it did. Glasgow was one of the major shipbuilding centres in the world. They had something like 12 or 15 shipyards. I've forgotten. And every single one, except one, all gone. And unless we understand this is going to happen and manage it, then we've got to do that. We can't just, the worst thing you could do is just leave it to uh, ad hocery. There should be a systematic determination over the next 20 years to get ourselves away from coal onto renewables and retrain people and as those people who are relying on the coal industry, they get retired and die out, so we make a very smooth transition and we can keep some sort of social responsibility in place.
0: But also, also with that, I think um, like ESCOM, for instance, needs, ESCOM itself needs competition. And they are keeping people out, um, they, they are keeping competition from coming into the market and supplying cheaper and cleaner energy. It's it's all it's all backhand shakes. Everybody's getting a cut of the pie as uh, and and they're all looking after their own pockets instead of after us as a country. So Well you see you see, I think David, there's no harm I think that's
1: part of the so called plan that we hear about, though they will introduce more competition. But you're absolutely right. There's no reason um, for there to be no competition at the same time there's no reason to take ESCOM and, ju- and chuck it into the ocean so no. that there's, that everyone should be able to live t- together in some
0: f- in some format yeah totally agree with you on that it, if it's going to happen I don't know but on the, on the comment you made about is this whole thing a wake up call for the world I think it is but then I'm not sure how long it's going to last. If, if this thing disappears tonight, are the people still going to be greeting their neighbor tomorrow? Are they still going to be cautious of how they wash their hands or the stuff that they touch? Or I, I personally think it's going to be not even six months and everything is going to be back to exactly the way it was before this pandemic came about. And that's, and that's yeah. a sad thing. That, that, I mean, it's a very serious concern you're raising. I mean, it
1: is interesting that we we're having this conversation with your extraordinary initiative, and I think you ought to be congratulated for that, Deval. And I think uh, I, I've, I've noticed uh, the importance uh, arising out of this thing to be much more in communication with your friends and your family and so forth. Uh, and we don't do enough of that. Mm. So, for example, in our family, we have a family in Europe, we're here. So I said, to them, every Friday night, 6.15, I want everyone on the lines. So we chit-chat, chit-chat for half an hour, the family. So we're all together for that half hour or 45 minutes talking about nothing or whatever it is, it doesn't yeah. matter. It's just the family chit-chat. And then uh, I said to them, well, that's all very well, guys, but why don't we organize a, a, a game of something? And so last Sunday, Andrew, the younger son, he managed to set up this game, and we all played this game, whether we were in Zurich or Amsterdam or South Africa. And it's all part of keeping ourselves together. You're absolutely right. Will we, will we maintain it post-crisis? I think you're going to make a conscious effort to do it. Yes. 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 Whether it happens in other places, I don't know, but you
0: have to make that effort. Yes. And and also, you've and it's the same as with my father's generation. Your generation of people, your age, and your and that grew up with you, within a couple of years, and I hope it doesn't happen soon, is that your experience is going to die away, and it's going to leave. All this only, only the, the recent modern history left for our kids to, to learn. So it's it's my children can still hear stories from my dad how they used to plow the fields with horses and with cattle and how they used to harvest with the hand and all those kind of things. from they grew up they, you guys must have seen the biggest technological boom. The world has ever seen from oh, absolutely, from absolutely from way back when till where you can run, you can have a meeting with all your family in one room from all over the world. Um, and and I I really hope that that traditions can still carry on when when um our parents um is not there anymore.
1: Well, I I think you've you've got to f- kind of force the issue a little bit. Um, Essentially what you say, I, I remember when my, my mother died about what, 10, 15 years ago, I uh, can't remember now. And, um, uh, I, uh, apart from being upset about her death, uh, that, that was one thing, but all of a sudden I realized I was cut off from life history. Yeah. In other words, um, I could no longer ask someone personally what happened in 1933 or what happened in 1925. I could read about it, but it's not the same thing as being able to ask no. someone who was there at the time. So that's your point. But anyway, I think what I'm really saying in all this is uh, we must, I think, use the opportunity to um, uh, inculcate into the children of, of our age the world. very interesting um, Deva for me was about two years ago in The uh, Spectator was an article written by one of the spectators. Uh, what I forget, uh, uh, doesn't matter. And it was about a competition in Singapore around Southeast Asia and of youngsters um, from the age of about eight up until 14. And the challenge before all of them, the competition was, what will your world be like in 50 years' time? And uh, I thought that was... In other words, the subject was from the mouths of babes. And as you know, that expression means they speak the truth. Yeah. Uh, They're they're not distorted by prejudice or or what have you. And uh, I read that. And then what I did was I... um, sent that to one of our grandsons in Zurich, who's, he's Swiss, his English is quite good, and I asked his mother, I want Eve to write me by January a short paragraph, how does he see his world in 50 years time? Now, the reason that is relevant to what we're talking about is because if you oblige the children to, uh, to answer the question, the question that follows from the answer is, well, what does it mean for you personally? How are mm. you going to behave if you think the world is going to be like that? Okay. Uh, and that brought up another discussion, and of course you get into the whole issue of flying cars. And but in the, in the thrust of his response was the planet, how to preserve the planet. Yes. And if anyone's interested in, and in, in you're posting this thing. There's a very actually I should find it for you. It's here on my desk. I don't know if people can see that, but this is National Geographic. have I got it right? way, Yeah, National Geographic. Okay. And this is the. Um, that's the pessimistic guide to the to the planet, and then there's the optimistic side to the planet. Okay. <laughs> so i think if someone's interested in the topic it could be a good journal to to, to read
0: yeah it's um it's, it's quite amazing it's um every year at the local high school one of the local high schools in Worcester I do they do like the mr and mrs Worcester gymnasium pageant and they've got a they've got a, a pre-judging area so it's not just the mr and mrs populace from the school that gets chosen by the kids everybody that wants to enter they they filled in the entry form, and then they go into the prejudging thing. So that's where I, that's where I, myself, and three or four other people go in, and they've got like three minutes. You've got three minutes with with each entrant, and then you chat with them about anything. And They've got this little form that they fill out. Um, yep. What's your five year plan and your ten year plan, and what are you passionate about, and all those kind of things. And and this this year particularly. I would say about 95% of the children that entered this thing wrote on there that they want to... The first thing is they want to save everybody. Everybody must be saved. That's interesting. Um, And the second thing is it's all about environmental protection in all sorts of... And some of these kids have got very, very interesting ways of thinking about all these kind of things. Um, For instance, the the one guy... He's, a, he's in my um, senior year now. He's, he's a type 1 diabetic. So he wears one of those little insulin pumps and everything. Yeah. Um, and he wants to go study mechatronic engineering to develop a better way of delivering insulin for people. Yeah. Like those, and, and how many 18-year-olds that you know has got that kind of mindset that that's what he wants to do? There's, there's one of the boys, and he really stood out for me, that he he his old mission and has been for the last 6 years this has been his life goal he's going to when he finishes school he's going to go to zurich and he's going to become a watchmaker like like a traditional analog watchmaker that is that's all he wants to do in his life is he wants to be a watchmaker but it's it's interesting things like that exactly like that question you've asked now um a lot of them want to save the environment, and that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, and th- by doing those surveys in those schools, you get some idea of how how the children are thinking. But as you talked about that, uh, Deva, let me go to another side of the, the thing. is that these children, we are still somewhat in a privileged position where we it's rather like that hierarchy of need things, you know, where um, uh, if, if you're at a certain part in society where you're concerned about food and heating and lighting and sex and all these sort of things, you know. Well, when you move up the hierarchy, well, you can start to go towards the so-called self-actualization part. Um, and I go back to my experience of working in one of the um, – well, doing some volunteer work in, uh, in Google Eto. And we used to um, bring people from a variety of professions to try and get the children to open their minds up to the idea. Well, uh, I, ba- you know, banking would be the typical thing they would go into or to become, become a lawyer or something like yeah. that. And we would expose them to a variety of um, um, careers. And then one day, and I don't know how I managed to put the question and how I got the answer, but there was a class of sixteen, and eventually out of that. I, from the way I asked the question, it, it turned out that two-thirds of those pupils in those, that class in that school in Google Eto, two-thirds said, we want to work for government. It's because it's a superior so income. It's, it's, so you've got a whole group of kids over here saying, we want to be concerned with all this sort of self-actualization issue, and you've got another group over here saying, I need to survive, and the only way I can survive is I know that the government will pay me a salary yes how do how do you handle that dichotomy
0: yep it's it's difficult it's uh, in in the same thing there was a, there was one of the boys and there was a girl as well um they they wrote on their what they want to become one day so they said they want to be a ceo <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I
1: said I said to him no, no you you don't want to become a CEO your, your longevity is
0: down to 4 years now carry on so I said I said to him I said to the first to the boy I said okay so you want to be a CEO you want to, of what do you want to be a CEO he says well he, he doesn't know he just wants to be a CEO I said but <laughs> you, you're going to be a CEO of a company a company that sells something a company that makes something a company that does something what is it that you see yourself do and it was like, as if I, I threw him with a bucket of cold water. He didn't know what to say to me. Um, so, <laughs> so I said, okay, I, and, I, and I asked him this question. I said, if you, if you can do anything, if you can wake up tomorrow morning and say, Okay, you're right, you could do anything in life and money is not a problem. You don't have to worry about earning a salary, about paying one single bill, nothing. What would you do? And he said that you will help people. So I said, there okay, well, that's what, that's what you must do. The other girl came in, also same story. She wants to be a CEO. So I said, okay, ask her the same question. No, she doesn't know. It must be a CEO because they just see this glamorous life and all the money and everything. So I said to her, okay, I asked her the same question and she said, no. and on the paper she wrote that she loves drawing and painting and art and all this kind of thing. I said, okay, again, she said now that she would, she would love to just do art. I said, okay, so why can't you have an art gallery? And she said to me, what am I saying? I said, first thing, it's your business. Technically, you are your own CEO then. Um, <laughs> yes, you are a CEO. You can, you can sell art. You can buy art. You can make money from that. And it's in what you love doing. And she said, oh, I never thought about that. And then off they went. So I really hope that this girl actually does something about that and, and stick to what she loves doing instead of having this ideal thing in her head. One day, it
1: it, it's, it really is tough, uh, particularly with children who live live in these areas like the Google Letters and the Cialici. So many of them. I mean, in our in that case, uh, my guess was something like seventy-five percent of the kids came from single-parent homes, mm-hmm. and most of them were mothers, and therefore lacked, let's say, the fatherly input. But you know, you could ask yourself the question: Well, are those fathers responsible? with if they're not there, they're not responsible. So they may not be ideal, but it's. I, I had the. I was very privileged in some respects to the that. I managed to um, mentor one young lady um, uh, from that school. Um, I employed her here in our little company at the time, and uh, she was one of two. Um, the first one was on. Um, a very lovely lady, too, lovely girl, and had 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 the potential, but then one day she arrived and she she asked me to read a letter and she burst into tears. I go, what's the pro-? I think her name was Anthea, I can't remember, and I read this letter and this was from her brother, saying I refuse to let my sister work in a white man's company in Camps Bay. End of story. I mean. Poor young lady, and yet the other the other lady, she had a she was also her mother, single single mother or sorry, single parent uh, with HIV, and I went to the house and uh, talked to her. Now that young lady, she's now somewhere in like young thirties. She has a little boy, and she's working in one of the banks. And she said, i have determined that uh, he will go to a private school and that he's going to do well. And that's uh, I don't know how we got
0: onto the topic. Yeah. I'm just saying. That's, if you can just get one or two. <laughs> yeah, if, okay. if you can get the message across to, uh, well, there's, there's one of the girls uh, last year, she was, I think she was 14 at that stage. And um, she said to me, she loves to, or oh, in this whole thing she wrote down, and one of the things that stood out she loves to do hair with, um, and she said she watches all these videos on YouTube about doing, ethnic type hair and all the kind of so she likes to experiment I said but why are you not making your own YouTube videos and she said well can I do that and I said well how do you think these people are doing it they created an account you're watching it um, so about two or three weeks later we did the photo shoot for the for the kitchen she came to me and says I posted my first video on YouTube last night so I said "Well, freaking done very well good. Done. So yeah, it's 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 just. I think it's often it's just giving them a, a a point of view from somebody outside. It's not their parents. It's not their teachers. It's right. not their it's not their friends at school. It's just somebody else seeing something different as to what the norm, what they are used to seeing. Yeah. I think
1: what we're also saying is that in a way you're going you're, you're going back to this idea of. People wanting to be more compassionate and more uh, social that wherever there's an opportunity to help someone and to stimulate someone and to th- this this is, you one should use it I mean uh, I found it uh, it'd be quite a privilege to to be part of that volunteer organization and to learn about something which i, well, I I'm aware of uh, you know, of poverty we might be just gonna- in Glasgow, we had more than enough poverty because it was post-war. But uh, when you see that amount, of, if you can just light a fire in someone, yes. it can work.
0: Yes, yes. Okay, let's get on to one or two of your other stories. I remember that um, you've told us when we were busy photographing. Um, and get back to the sailing part. You told us how you got lost at sea with the yacht once. or well, you capsized... <laughs> What, what happened there? I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't uh,
1: <laughs> For, fortunately, David, I've, I've never got yeah. lost at sea. <laughs> I, generally speaking, uh, being the navigator, I, I, yeah. I, I ought to know where I was. <laughs> well, uh, the story you're, you're alluding to is the fact that perhaps as a navigator, I failed to read a little black box in the, the sailing um, guide. Uh, We were in, um, where was it, the Bahamas, uh, near um, the Abacos. And we'd started in Fort Lauderdale. Um, After about three or four hours of being in the yacht, we lost all our lights. It's a 70 nautical mile run to the the Bahamas. So I had to handle that single-handed. No lights, but at least I had a full moon on my sails. And my two buddies, they'd gone below seasick. So for about 10 hours, I sailed this thing across. What The, the most, um, it's got a very high current. There's about five knots of current flowing south to north. Uh, so you have to really work out the, the angles. and. Yeah. Got there. <clears throat> and then three or four days later, we went around the top of the Abacos, heading from Marsh Harbor. And it was a Saturday morning, midday, no wind. Um, five, yeah, We had the mainsail up. And suddenly the waves got steeper and steeper and then we came down and there was this huge wave uh well two three four meters high must have been i can't remember now even higher six meters for the sake of it and it just took the boat tossed us upside down threw us all out and we ended up in the ocean and uh survived (laughs) so it was quite an experience i mean the it's the rule. The rule is if you get washed overboard, get back to the yacht because if, say, they put the helicopters up to find you, uh, very difficult to find a head in the water. Yes. But at least if you've got the boat, they'll find the boat. So get to the boat. Uh, and the waves that had hit us, eventually the boat was turning on, on its side. And the only way I could get back on the boat was, well, you, you don't think about it. You just you have know, no experience. You just have to get on that boat. And, of course, the boat was like this in the water. So as the boat went like this, I went under the boat. The boat came down the gunnels. I could just about grab them, which I did. And then the next minute the boat heaves up and I managed to get myself onto the deck. <clears throat> uh, and then after a, a moment of recovery, started to look around for my companions. Uh, found one of them in the water, managed to get him on board. And then we were starting to look for his girlfriend we couldn't find her and then she popped up somewhere and she managed to get towards the boat and i can still remember it was a, it was she was really struggling because she was almost drowning and uh, we just grabbed her somehow and i never forgotten i just never mind dignity hand around the crotch get her up <laughs> put her on the deck <laughs> and we we survived.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now it's 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 very interesting. I listened to a podcast about a gentleman who did a solo a solo traverse of Antarctica, and Oof. but 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 he walked it. There's a, from one point to another point, and he walked it. And used the he's got the record for the first guy that physically walked this whole way. The other guy did it. And he did it quicker, but he used a, he used a big kite and like a board to to, yes. to to sail across. And it goes a lot. He covered something like 38 miles in a day, where this other guy he yeah. he had to walk it, and with a sled yeah, he had to pull. It out. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So it, it was a big a big story, and they and they tried to make him out as a as a scam in National Geographic of all places. And um, he then set out to do. A, to do an open ocean row with I think two or three other guys. A complete, a completely unassisted row. So Thank they've got much. they've got support boats with them for in case something goes wrong. But everything that they do and, and also they documented this whole thing. So the so the support boats had the film crew on and had the internet connections and all those kind of things. But they weren't physically helping them. And they yeah. and yeah. they they rowed the Drake passage from from the southern tip of of um, South America oh. through. And it was very interesting. I, I'll I'll see if I can but, find that link and I'll send it to you. It's it's. How it's a, how
1: they survived that is just. I mean, when that Drake Passage, when the winds come, the winds come through there, and the way. I mean, unbelievable. You know. But you know, when you talk of the Antarctic, of course, you you, you come back to to Shackleton and Scott and what they uh, they did or did not. and um, and the distance, uh, I happened to do a little bit of research on it, uh, on Scott. I mean, imagine he walked more or less from the equivalent, it would have been like from the Gulf of Mexico, almost to Chicago. Jeez, Lord. that's That's the distance from the pole back to Evans Base Camp
0: where he, where he... I mean, it's just... I mean, and to do that in those temperatures, I mean... Mm. And with, without, oh, yeah. without any of the tech, technology, in terms of clothing, uh, shoes, food, anything that, they, that we've got today, it's, it's yeah, there's no way you can do it.
1: Well, they died eventually from, deep, I mean, very interesting was that if you compare the, the experience of Amundsen and, 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 and Scott, um, I mean, Scott knew the Antarctic, he'd been there before. But Amundsen was more or less born to actually do it, and one of the things he knew was that you 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 do these little, uh, I you call them storage camps, all the way into the pole and then all the way out, and you mark them. And crucial it was the, the it was paraffin to heat uh, mm. the water and to heat food and so forth and to even be warm inside the tent. And Amundsen knew that. If you bury these cans of, um, of um, containing the kerosene in the in the in the ice or in the snow, it actually leaches out of the can. Now, Scott did not know this, oh. so when he was coming back, he was finding out that he did not have the the fuel, and that's one of the reasons why he he didn't make it. Yeah. Very, very tragic.
0: Yeah, there's a there's another one I also listened, and I must I'm busy trying to think now of these guys that did deep sea um, deep deep sea exploration in the Antarctic. So basically what it was they they had a camp and then would go to the edge of the ice shelf every day and they would they would do dives and do investigative stuff on the creatures and whatever there is. Yeah. And um, I must actually find it and listen to it again because it was absolutely amazing. It was this, it, this guy's a marine biologist and he went in, he went in the one day, he says you climb into this pitch black dark water because you can't see yeah, anything yeah. and you've got these suits on and rebreathers and the whole bank shoot and he said it was, it was as if he felt somebody watch looking at him. You know, you get the feeling some, something's watching you yeah. and, and he turned around and he saw one of these one of these seals. And he says the seal which is sitting there looking at this strange creature in it, in this water now. And it it swam up into the hole where they dived in. It's, it's just this beam of light coming into the ocean and yeah. the water's crystal clear. And the thing blew out a stream of bubbles. And he said it was the most spectacular thing he's ever seen in his life. And on that same trip, he, he caught a, a prawn uh, or a shrimp. Yeah. Uh, I can't exactly remember what it was, but... In that shrimp, they found something that they could use in modern medicine again. For I don't, I can't remember. I must go listen to it again to to see the exact what it was. But it was absolutely amazing.
1: Well, to go back to the the, the drug industry where we started our conversation, many many um, compounds which are used today actually originated in nature in some form or other. Yes. And uh, what the industry has done, of course, is it's it, it breaks down, it, it tries to understand the chemistry of that, let's say, substance. And, and then what it does, it then rebuilds that chemistry in the, in the, in the laboratory to the, to the right scale and to the right purification. That's, and that's, I mean, that's how many of the medicines that we use today uh, came out. That's how they came about. So yeah. it's not all just pure chemistry, it's, it's, it's also something, it's not, it's not natural, but it's well. It, it's, the sources are really natural, but it's the yeah. way that the chemists understand the molecule.
0: Yeah. On, on that topic, I think it will be, I wonder when the, if, if there's a vaccine for this COVID-19 thing that comes out quickly, or if not, um, I don't think it's going to be, have any impact this year or next year in what we do. It's a a shame.
1: Drug development is not something that happens instantaneously. We have to go through various phases to make sure that we've got the effectiveness and we've got the safety. So um, I mean they have started clinical trials um, in volunteers already, but these are for tolerance levels. In terms of let's say efficacy and safety, they're going to need bigger numbers. And that takes time, that could take, a with the time they have a vaccine, it could take a year.
0: Yeah.
1: It's, like somebody but it, it's, it's not insurmountable, they will, they, it's not like trying to find a, a drug for cancer or something, that's a, much more, a much, much more prolonged trial period, with a vaccine they can go quite quickly.
0: Yeah, it's um, somebody, was it in the news, if it was fake news or something, I'm not sure whether, whether Bill Gates said that they must test the vaccine in Africa. Well, I've, we've 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 got a couple of jail cells full of rapists and murderers that they can start with. <laughs>
1: well, actually, sometimes sometimes I'm to, I'm I am i i do not know how true it is, but somebody once said to me that uh, many many of the prison population in in the USA volunteer to enter clinical trials. They have nothing else to do all day, so why don't they do that? Yeah,
0: and, and I believe in, in the States you get paid as well if, you, if you're if going to do these clinical trials. Um, the, patient will, the patient will get compensated for costs,
1: if I remember rightly, but they don't get paid a salary. They just get their – uh, it's, it's an ethical issue, which I'm not always clear, clear about. Anyway, there we are. Yeah. And I think, just to say we were talking about traveling in the Antarctic and the other thing I would recommend if anyone at all interested is, is to have a look at Svalbard, yes. which is yes. the up, up in the polar, polar region and that brings you into a totally different area altogether. Very interesting. Um, and finding a polar bear is not easy. <laughs> not easy.
0: Yeah, but you but you in you Gloucester you on, on that trip, if I'm correct.
1: Yeah, uh, we, uh, we, we managed to find uh, – I think our first polar bear was rather uh, – uh, he wasn't very well, and you could see it from the way his hips, the bones of his hips were showing up. And I think – I have a picture of him, actually. I should almost send it to you. He stands up on, onto the boat yeah. like, like a dog would stand up and, on, onto a, a table, uh, and it's looking for food, poor, poor, poor animal.
0: Sure. Yeah, you know, there's many places in the world I would still like to go see. I I'd a chat to um, a photographer who lives in Uganda at the moment. Um, oh yes. And uh, Keith Keith Connolly is a is is a very very good wildlife photographer and he said he's been to a place in the southern part of Chad where you almost can't get to. He says it's so remote, it's on the edge of the Sahara. He says the wildlife there is just it's staggering. It's thousands upon thousands of birds and animals from all sorts just in one place and That's he says it, it gives you a glimpse of what Africa could have been like 400 years ago
1: Yeah, I haven't I haven't looked at Chad, but I was talking to um, Kirsten frost about it the other day And uh, it's not only the wildlife, but it's also some of the the structures inside the desert.
0: Yes, those are very interesting,
1: Um, rather like um, Wadi Ram in Jordan. You have these um, colossal stone like sand dunes. It's not like Namibia, quite different um, and very interesting and very, very rewarding to photograph.
0: Hmm. To get to shoot that with a little bit of a night sky could be quite interesting. Yes, yeah, yeah, there's lots of things. In fact, even
1: I've got the task, and and as you know, I'm not the most creative of individuals, but uh, he asked me to photograph things around the house during this confinement period. Uh, You, with your imagination, (laughs) and and Leon, you'll you'll find something. I can't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, it's, I've, I've, had, I've had so many ideas of stuff that I want to shoot and, well, I'm almost glad the, the, the lockdown got extended because hopefully I, I can come around to go do them. Um, uh, but uh, trying to put this thing together is actually quite a hard work to get people to come and chat to every single day and then make sure all the connections are, are right and I've got the, the audio recorded and everything. So... Yeah, I, I need to. I need to make plans to do all the stuff that I was actually thinking of doing. Yeah, around the house, not just photography, well, you, but just the homework as well.
1: Well, you've done a great job with this one, and I hope this is what you were hoping for. And I yes. hope it's it's uh, it's, uh, it's it's part of the successful, you know, in terms of the project you're working on. I think it's a great idea.
0: No, it's just um, it's just to talk to interesting people is all it's about for me.
1: So, you now, you now put this on YouTube,
0: or what do you do with the Ivan? Yeah, this thing is actually live on YouTube at the moment, and there's two people watching us. Oh, I don't know. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I hope we haven't bored them. No, it, wasn't, it definitely wasn't boring for me. Um, and I'm, I'm recording the, the voice, our voices, that I put together in a podcast, that should people want to listen to it later, they can do so. Okay, so if I want to go and look at myself on YouTube, I can do it afterwards. Yeah, you can actually go on there right now and look at yourself. <laughs> I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
1: right. so we'll, we'll conclude, and I yeah. hope that was fun and interesting. It was. And, it was. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. I, I consider it a privilege.
0: Yeah, I think um, we could have, I th- like with everyone else, I think if, if, you, if you let time be, you can go on for like three or four hours in the blink of an eye, and um, there's so much stuff to talk about.
1: Yes. Oh. All right, well, all, all I, what would be nice to do is, is meet again personally and go and do some photography. Yes. Because remember, my skills are just simply pressing the button.
0: Yeah, Then we, we, we've, <laughs> we've got you a little bit further than that. If uh, those, those recent photos you sent me with the camels, they are mind-blowing, they are amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, it's
1: the help of in, in a structure like uh, Kirsten, who you know yourself, you you get this the scene. No, you get the opportunity to take the photo, the, the shot, uh, and if you're doing it con- with continuous, with a bit of luck, out of let's say forty pictures, you get that one that sparkles.
0: Yeah, those those are amazing. I I don't care if it took two hundred photos to get that one. They are they are amazing. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is. I, I
1: submitted one to the previous competition. Uh, it was just the camels walking on the ridge with with the boys and the sticks, and the judge gave it, I think, a twenty six, and and I sent it to uh, Leon Ustez, and he goes, Roger, tell me why, what was the reason or how did it excite? How did he explain the difference between the 30 and the 26? Why did he not,
0: you know, yeah. what was the four? What did you lose four points for? Yes, 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 yes. That's all the whole thing. Well, judging well. is judging. <laughs> okay, Roger, thank you so much for, for coming to join me. And it, it's hopefully we can do this again in person. And, uh,
1: yeah, yeah. It would be uh,
0: nice to do that, all right? Have a couple of good whispers. Especially now your, your,
1: your, your, hair, your hair's
0: all cropped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. You must have a a lovely Easter weekend further on and um, enjoy it as much as you can. Okay. You too. I'm going to go and do some more exercise now. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Bye. Bye, Bye-bye, Roger. Bye-bye.